Jesus, you're the only reason we are here. Help us now to align our wills and our hearts to that reality. We come from many different paths, many different roads. But here in this place which has been set aside and sanctified for your church to declare your worth, now we, we take a few minutes to hear your word. The Apostle John declared you to be the living word, the eternal word, the creating word. And may all of our attention be turned to you. May we hear your voice as John recorded the last few conversations he had, you had with your chosen disciples before you unleashed them on the world the ones who would eventually turn the world upside down. May we be challenged, comforted, confronted, convicted. But most importantly, may we see you and may we hear your voice. We pray this, Jesus, in your name to our Heavenly Father through the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to return to the book of John, chapter 20. Uh, I'm going to fly through quite a bit um, the last half of John 20 and chapter 21. Um, we've all, if you've been in church for a long time, you've heard the details of this. Um, but I want to, I want to get through this. I want us to look at this maybe in a, a slightly different point of view. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Um, and he's uh, had a conversation with Mary Magdalene. We talked about that last week. And now uh, the disciples who have been told by Mary Magdalene that Jesus was raised from the dead and she encountered him have, according to the Gospel of Luke, um, they've just had two of their number um, or two other disciples, not not of the, the 11 that are left, but the other disciples have come in from Emmaus and said that they have had a conversation with Jesus, the risen Christ. And, and that's not in John's Gospel, but it, um, but it is in Luke and it happens. And in verse 19, on the evening of that day, so Sunday night, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, this is just a very common uh, Jewish greeting, shalom. All right? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told them, told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now I'm not going to get in too deep into this, but one of the functions that John's uh, epilogue, this this part, uh, John 20 and 21, really this last half of 20 and, and 21, one of the functions it serves is um, John is writing at the end of the first century. 
um, decades after the other Gospels have been written. And in the Gospel of Matthew, um, Matthew records that Jesus appeared and he told his disciples to go to Galilee and he would appear there in Galilee. But then Mark and Luke both say that Jesus appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem. And just like today, there are people who take what's in the Bible and they say, they say, well, see, this is a contradiction, which I've always found odd that they think that um, they, they're like, well, this one says one thing and this says another thing. And those two things can't possibly be true as if all of this happened in like five minutes. Like, it, like they, they, you, they can't even comprehend the idea that maybe there was a week or two involved in this situation. There's Jesus could appear more than once and those kind of things. So John writes his gospel and since he is there, he was there, he's going to he's going to explain what actually happened. In fact, if you read the gospel of Luke, you find out that the disciples uh that that came, those two disciples that came from Emmaus who had sound Je- said seen Jesus, and Luke says that they went to Jerusalem and met with the 11 disciples one time. Um now John who was there, he's going to clarify the compression of that. He's going to say, well, technically Jesus met with 10 of us and then Thomas said that uh, he didn't see Jesus and so then Jesus showed up again. And in verse 20, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace with you, be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, over the course of the last year, we've talked a lot about this book, the Gospel of John. And John is writing to the second and third generation of Christians, the people that were born in the church, raised in the church. These are not the people that lived um, at the time when Jesus lived, but rather their parents and their grandparents were the ones who had lived during that time, had told them about Jesus. And, and, and these, are the, these are the people that grew up hearing the story of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are the people who grew up memorizing parts of the letters of Paul. And at the end of this generation, as John, the last of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, is getting ready to pass off the scene, probably in his 90s at this point, as he wants them to know everything, he, he wants them to not just acquire knowledge, but he wants them to believe. And that's one of the reasons I think he includes this bit about Thomas, the latecomer. Um, see, when Luke tells the story, he just says, you know, Jesus appeared to the eleven. But John says, well, he appeared to ten of us, and then there was one that wasn't there, and he needed to see. There was one, there was one more that needed to be convinced because in this second and third generation, there's those who believe and then there's those who live around those who believe who have to come to belief on their own. See, you're not born a Christian just because your parents went to church. Um, that doesn't make you a Christian. 
Just because you maybe know all the words or go to Sunday school or been a part of of things, that's not what makes us a Christian. What makes us a, a Christian is faith in Christ. And yeah, the step to go from what I can easily understand and comprehend and rationalize to something that is as crazy and kooky dukes as the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and makes no mistake, humanly speaking, that's nuts. There's never been a resurrection like Jesus's. There there never had been before and, and there never will be since. There was just that one. It's definitely an anomaly. It's an outlier in history. And it takes faith to believe that it happened and that it matters. But G- John says these things were written so that you may believe. May believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. It's not enough to just know. We have to believe. And then verse 21, or chapter 21, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Now, we're going to get into that, but I just want to, I want to take a look. Why, why the first appearance? Why this moment in Jerusalem when the doors are locked and they need to hear peace, and they need to see his body, and, and the, peer, the, the holes of the nails in his hands, and, and, and his feet, and the, the, his side um, pierced. Why did they need to see? And then why does Jesus come back to make sure that Thomas knows? I think there's a very simple reason. Um, I don't really, I don't usually do this, but um, I've got an alliterated outline. Whoa. Um, not that deep of an outline because it's only got two points, but anyway. This first set of appearances is Jesus' confirmation of the message. He's confirming to them that everything that he had said was leading to this moment. He's confirming to them that yes, he was raised from the dead. And yes, they have been chosen to speak on his behalf. The Bible says that Jesus breathed on him. That had to have been a weird moment. And Jesus, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, there's 10 of them there. So does Jesus do like a really long, like birthday candle blowout? Like, I I don't know. I mean, or does he do it one at a time? It's like, I don't, I don't know how he did it. But the point is that Jesus breathes on him. He says, receive the spirit of God. Now, the reason he says that is the Hebrew and Greek words for spirit and breath are the same. And, and so Jesus is saying, I'm divine, I'm breathing on you. And John, in depicting that, he's recalling Genesis chapter 2, when God breathes into the body of Adam and he makes him a living soul. He's saying, I'm breathing into the church, I'm breathing into these disciples, I'm making it a living thing. Um, Paul would later actually describe the church as the body of Christ, um, made alive by him. Uh, Peter would describe the church as being quickened, the believers being quickened, um, made alive by uh, the presence of Christ. But Jesus is, he's finished with the preparation, 
He's finished laying the, the foundations of their job as the apostles. And so now he's putting a final confirmation to what's going on. He's confirming. It's a confirmation of the mission. And, and in that confirmation, um, he, he is, he's showing them the reality of who he is. As, 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 as unnatural, as, as beyond anything that we can rationalize, the resurrection is. You know the only thing more absurd, um, logically, than the resurrection? It is a bunch of people dying for the belief in the resurrection if they didn't really believe it. If it was a made-up story. Every single one of the men in this room, um, except for John, will, will die, according to church tradition, a brutal martyr's death. Uh, some are, are crucified upside down, sideways. One is flayed alive. If you don't know what that mean, it means, Google it. It's not pleasant. Um, they die all kinds of different ways. And in fact, for the first uh, 250 years or so, to be a Christian is basically a death sentence. If you get found out, how ridiculous is it that that many people would die for something that wasn't real, a made up story, a fiction, something convenient. I mean, it's one thing to say something ludicrous, right? How many of you parents have had one of your children give you an absolutely absurd explanation for something that happened? Aliens came down. And they, they, uh, it was unbelievable. And then it sneezed on my homework and it deleted all the print. You know, uh, it, you know they, they, they come up with these crazy, and I'm trying to think of one that Ariel did. Ariel, Ariel was, Ariel's always been a very imaginative kid. Um, and so even, even when she was making excuses, they were fantastic. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we all know that. Or we have, we have co-workers who somehow seem to have contracted every single disease that has ever existed to get excused from work. We, have, we, we know that people come up with these fanciful explanations for things all the time, but would they die for them? I mean, who would die for a made-up story? I, I mean, you never hear about be, people being fed to lions because they believe Little Red Riding Hood is a true story. It doesn't happen. So here are all these people. now, And keep in mind that this second and third generation of believers, they have relatives, they have family members who have been cast out of their community, have been persecuted, have even been martyred. They know the story of the apostles and how they scattered through the world and how they died preaching the message of Jesus. He says, I'm writing this to you so that you will believe. This is real. This is true. And John knows, um, John knows that these, these believers, these people that didn't live through this, it takes a real step to believe something you don't, you can't see. It's preparation. It's a confirmation of the message. But then he picks up in chapter 21... Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others of the disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, 
I'm going fishing. Now, this means that they've gone back to Galilee. So there's a time period here. You don't fish in the Jordan River. Um, and so you go to the sea of, they go to the Sea of Galilee. They're back home, probably in Capernaum. Simon says, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we've got nothing else to do. We'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This is the second time that the resurrected Jesus in John, it actually happens in Luke as well, the resurrected Jesus, they don't recognize him. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? I've got to pause here for a second. Those of you that, how many of you fish? You were fishermen. All right. If you hadn't caught anything all day and some schmo yelled from somewhere else and said, Hey, kids, you caught anything? I mean, that's cause for fisticuffs right there. I mean, this has been a long day with no fish. All right. He says, Hey, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. All right. And he said to them, Now, keep in mind, this is being shouted. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of this this gospel, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. I love this moment. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. In other words, he's, he's, he's shirtless. He's not like stripped completely down. Um, But he's been working all night. He throws himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Now notice here, Simon Peter didn't get there first. He probably could have just stayed in the boat and gotten there at the same time. But Simon Peter doesn't always think. He acts. The other side, they come dragging this, this net of fish. They're only about 100 yards off. That's still quite a row. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. This, by the way, is the, the third statistic that John uses to verify the story. The first one is that he says that Jesus appeared to Thomas eight days after he appeared to the disciples. That is a weird number. All through the Gospel of John, John has used numbers like three and seven because they're 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 special. You know, there, there's there's a component to them. Um, the resurrection, Jesus is in the grave for the 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 grave for three night three days and three nights. There's um, affinities with Jonah, and then seven, the creation. But he says there's eight days. Then he says that they're a hundred yards off. That's an awful random number, unless you're trying to prove you were actually there. And then he says I counted 153 fish. All right, that's a strange number. And I have seen commentaries about the reason for 153. That's the number of nations of people on the earth. No, that's ridiculous. Then people have tried to do like kind of like a Kabbalah thing and combine. Well, it's the Hebrew numbers, Hebrew's letters, Aleph and Het, and it means this. No, you know what it means? There were 153 fish. That's all it means. right 
Sometimes the simplest answer is the right one. There were 153 fish. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come. If you remember, all the way back in chapter 1, Jesus says, come. Come and see. The disciples, they asked Jesus, where are you staying tonight? He says, come and see. And when, uh, when the disciples scatter and find their friends and their relatives, and they say, you've got to meet this guy. I think he's the Christ. Um, they say, come and see. He says, come. Have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. John has a very specific reason for making this three appearances. You could dispute one. You could, dis- you could say two. But when you've got three, all right, you've got three now you've got to be able to disprove three different events. It's making a, this is a, a common a rhetorical argument in Greek legal language to make sure you have three um, bases for your argument. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. Because again, Peter doesn't think. Peter does not, Peter doesn't see the symmetry of what Jesus is doing. Peter had denied Jesus three times. Now Jesus makes Peter confess his love three times. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, he said, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Truly, truly, amin, amin, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to him to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. According to tradition, Peter um, was crucified upside down um, in Rome. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus has this very intense conversation with Simon Peter where he rolls back Peter's denials and comes all the way back to that first moment when Jesus said to him, follow me. He says, Simon Peter, the reason that you have been through all of this is because you are about to become my instrument on earth. In the other Gospels, they have Jesus standing at Caesarea Philippi, and he says to Peter, um, upon this rock, uh, Kepha in Aramaic, um, Petros in Greek, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says, Peter, you're about to take a step into a world where I'm not going to be here anymore. You're going to have to answer for everything you do. And as you go through your life, it's not going to be a quick and sudden martyrdom. You're not going to die 
guy storming the walls of Jerusalem to free the city from, from the Romans. He says, you don't, you're not going to need a sword. You're going to have to walk peacefully into the face of opposition. You're going to have to challenge the authority of those who tell you to be quiet. All through the book of Acts, they keep telling Peter, shut up, stop talking. And he won't do it. Jesus has call, Jesus is calling Simon Peter to be something more than what he was when Jesus found him. And then Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. John, John is kind of hanging back a little bit of this conversation. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and he said, Lord, who is it? And he was the one that said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Peter saw him and he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad the brothers that this disciple was not to die. John includes this because at 90 years old, he's starting to look a little immortal. According to church tradition, he was boiled alive in oil and survived. Uh, According to tradition, the Romans actually, they send him to the island of Patmos, which is just a rock. Um, There's nothing there, just a mine and some caves, because they figured if you can't kill him, you might as well stash him somewhere he can't make any trouble. He says, yet Jesus did not say that he was not to die. John is like, just so you're clear on this. I will be dying, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? And this is the disciple, this is John saying for himself, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, John's, this is John's, uh, John's postscript to explain the authority he speaks from because all through the Gospel of John, John has been making a legal case for the ministry, the person, and the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now he's saying, I can affix my name to this and say that my testimony is true. I've presented all the evidence. But, in verse 25, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the book that would be written. In his encounters in Jerusalem, Jesus confirmed the message. He confirmed the job that was about to come. But here, we see Jesus' care and comfort for the messengers. These are men that Jesus loves. These are not throwaway souls. People to be used up to forward his agenda They're his friends. He loves them. He cares for them. And before he leaves, John wants us to be sure that before Jesus leaves, these men, to do the job they're called to do, he cares for them. He pulls Simon Peter aside. First of all, he feeds them breakfast. All right? But he pulls Simon Peter aside. He makes Simon Pe- make sure that Simon Peter knows your denial does not change what I've been doing with you because I know you love me. And he looks at John. He says, I've got a job for him to do. He says to Simon Peter, you do your job. John will do his job. Don't worry. I'm in control of the whole situation. Just 
follow me. There are three things, four things I think that are worth noting about the way that Jesus cares and comforts for these men. First, by preparing the meal and giving them, telling them where to catch the fish and all that things, I think he's reinforcing something we need to understand in our work as followers of Christ as the church. And that is that the work is Jesus's, not ours. The, the product, the things that happen, the people who come to faith, the growth of, of young Christians and young men and women in the church into, into leaders, all of those things, that's, that's Christ's work. We get to be a part of it. We get to cast the nets. We get to haul in the fish. But it's his work. I think it's extraordinary. He tells them to catch some fish, but he's already caught some. He didn't need them to do the work. He chose them to do the work. Secondly, when we look at his interaction with Simon Peter, I think it's important we notice that forgiveness is real. I grew up in a tradition where guilt and fear were used to motivate people to behave like good Christians. I saw it happen in Christian school. I saw it happen in college. I saw it happen in churches. I served in churches where it happened. Guilt and fear to make you conform to the Christian message, to do the right thing. I think really, truly understanding the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus is a much greater motivator for service than guilt and fear. When you really get a hold of just how big an idea it is that you have been forgiven. People say, well, you can't talk like that because people will think that they can just do whatever they want because they'll be forgiven. Not if they really understand his forgiveness. If they just see his forgiveness as just cranking a hand on it. I used to say, I used to say that uh, you know, people think of forgiveness as something that comes in one of those bubble things in a vending machine. But I don't know if anybody even understands what that means anymore used to be that all retail establishments had these vending machines and for like a dime or it eventually it got up to like a dollar. You had to like actually carry change. You had to drop it in there and crank the little handle and you'd get like some useless toy that would keep you busy for like 30 seconds until you got to the car and lost it between the seat cushions. And, and people think of forgiveness that way. They think of instantaneous forgiveness. Well, I sinned. I passed Jesus. Jesus forgives me of my sin. I can go on with my life. I can go sin again. Live like Satan Monday through Saturday. Ask Jesus forgiveness Saturday night. And go to church on Sunday. That's not understanding the forgiveness of God. Simon Peter understands the forgiveness. He denied his Lord and Master. And Jesus says, you know what you can do? You've been forgiven. Feed my sheep. You love me. I love you. Feed my sheep. He helps us understand the work is his. We understand that forgiveness is real. And I think the third thing, it's kind of implicit. When Peter looks at John, he says, well, what about him? Jesus says, don't worry. Everybody plays a part. Everybody has their job. Everybody has their role. And one is not more important than the other. You might grow old and be crucified in Rome and he might live on a rock in the Mediterranean. Peter, um, he gets to write first and second Peter, these kind of short, not really, 
you know, you don't want to say this about the inspired word of God, but they're not very well written. They're, they're good. They're, they're there, but the Greek is kind of choppy. It's almost like he doesn't really, really understand all the stuff. And then John gets to write the revelation. I mean, Peter gets like eight chapters. John gets 21 plus a gospel and three letters. Which is more than Nathaniel or Thomas got. I mean, literally Thomas, the only thing he gets is a mention about him being double-minded. Everyone plays a part. His work is his. The forgiveness is real. Everyone plays a part. We're all in this together. But I think the most extraordinary thing about it is the way that Jesus says, come and follow me. And he speaks, although Peter has changed radically since he's met Jesus, Jesus's mission is still the same. Jesus is still doing the exact same thing. He's still moving all of these men that he collected on the, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, a bunch of troublemaking fishermen, a, a, a middle-aged guy with a, a, with a, a home in, in Capernaum, a, a tax collector, a, a zealot, the Iscariot. Um, he, he's collected all these different people, cousins and, and friends and relatives. He's brought them all together because he's got a mission and his mission doesn't change, but they're going to change to be a part of his mission. And his comfort to them that we're still on task. Now you're ready. The time has come. I'm going to go. You can't follow. You stay here. You do the job. And when he first said to them, this is what's happening, they started to ask questions and they were confused. Now he says it and they just accept it. Let's go. Jesus strikes a balance, a perfect balance between the mission and the people of the mission. And we as followers of Christ, it is so easy to fall into the trap of putting our mission under the cover of Jesus' mission, working ourselves raw and then saying we, we're burning out for Jesus. It's also so easy for us to say on the other side of the spectrum, well, I just don't know what Jesus has for me to do. I'm just going to sit and wait, and one day it will appear from heaven, and I'll be clear. Jesus balances all these things. He confirms the mission, then he, he cares for the missionaries, and then he says, let's get this done. Let's go. Follow me. We as the church are not called to a different mission than the apostles. I want to say this again. We as the church are not called to a different mission than the apostles. We have the same message confirmed by the apostles and we are cared for by the same Christ. Now, their role in the mission was a little bit different. 
They were going to be used by God to write what we have the New Testament, interpret the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. They had a little bit of a different role. And you know what? All of us have a little bit of a different role. Paul describes us as different parts of the body. Some of us get to be feet. Some of us get to be eyes. Some of us get to be the colon. All right? Bodies are bodies. They're all important. Try living without any of those. We have different roles in the mission, but the mission is the same. That means that the care is the same. I don't know about you, but sometimes um, sometimes as a Christian, I start to wonder whether Jesus really cares. Like, there's just too much going on. It's too, it's too heavy. I can't take it anymore. It's driving me nuts. And I have to be reminded, Christ still cares. He, he's called me to the job. And although sometimes the job is bigger than I could ever imagine being able to handle, parents, you all feel that? He's called me to that mission. He's called me to that ministry. He confirms it in us. And then he cares for us. As we look forward to what God is going to do, we look back, as John did, at everything that was extraordinary and look forward to everything that is yet to come, knowing he has established the mission, he's prepared us as the missionaries, he cares and comforts us. And we can face it as long as we follow him. You join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, help us not to try to do church in our own power, in our own ability. But to look to you, the author and our finisher of our faith, the one who calls us to follow you. May we truly follow. Help us to go deeper in your word every day, deeper, to hear your spirit's voice, to move and be moved by your hand. And Lord, when we feel the darkness closing in, when we have the locked doors and the fear, when we give up and push the boat out to go fishing in the middle of the night. Help us to know your presence and follow you. We pray this in your precious and holy name.